as beautiful and as wonderful as things are, sometimes they decay. They need to be refreshed. They need to be renewed. They need to be repaired. We know this about all sorts of things. There's not a, a day that passes, but there aren't things in our lives and things in our homes and and around our yards and places of our employment where we recognize we need to, to work on things and constantly work at them. Sometimes the only thing that will fix a piece of technology is what we refer to as a hard reset. Sometimes the only thing that can be done with a building is an extensive renovation that's beyond anything else. And sometimes the real need of the believer is restoration, a real work of God. And as beautiful as the work of grace has been in such a believer's life, that work may grow stale. They still pray, still read their Bible, still attend the house of God, they still talk about the Lord. But whereas once the heart was kept with all diligence, now if you look closely, you'll find dust, you'll find cobwebs in the corners of their heart. I think most of us have been there, and maybe that's exactly where we are today. You never meant it to happen. Truth be told, you're not even sure how it happened. And yet you find yourself drawing near to God, as we've expressed already, with your lips, with your mouth, and yet your heart is far from Him. And if that's the case, there's a message for you found right here in Hosea 10, verse 12. The prophet Hosea begins ministering in the northern kingdom before the captivity. And he has a tremendous time of it, really. Sometime in the last years of freedom, he is trying to sound the trumpet, endeavoring to raise the alarm, to make people aware of what is looming. And this poor man is not just brought to feel the brokenness of his nation by living through the decline but he lives through the experience of Israel's unfaithfulness personally by being called to marry an unfaithful woman named Gomer. And he gives names to his children, each of those names communicating judgment to Israel. So even as he looks at the children, he is reminded of the condition in which he finds himself, the day in which he lives. God threatens to strip Israel naked before recovering her and tells Israel to pursue his unfaithful wife to illustrate God's pursuit of unfaithful Israel. And God complains about the sins, the wickedness of the priests, and he declares to even them, Hosea 4, 6, saying, Thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. These are to the religious leaders, the priests of the land. They've forgotten the law. They've neglected the Word of God. They're meant to be those who herald it and live by it and express it by the way they live, and yet they've forgotten it altogether. And God says, I'm going to forget your children. You would think such language would wake them up, that such things would stir them. But that is not so. There's a heavy emphasis upon both spiritual and practical fornication. And in a day such as we are living in today, I think it has much to say to us because the professing church is filled with such things, the whoredom of pornography and the fact that even virginity is rare, even within the professing church. And so Hosea has a, a certain application because in all of our unfaithfulness 
unfaithfulness outwardly, it expresses our unfaithfulness inwardly. The fact that we have departed from God, we have left God, we have set Him aside. And so Hosea says in chapter, four verse, chapter 5, verse 4, they will not frame their doings to turn on to their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. Sometimes that's what we think as we look at our world today, as you, as you see the things that go on, even in the professing church, not considering the general state of society. But clearly society has come into the professing church, bleeds into the life of the professing church so that just like the prophet, you're making mention of things that ought not to be uttered. You're dealing with things that you would hope would never be uttered or mentioned within Israel. But they're there, present, in full view. And the prophet comes to expose it. Of course, they can't see it. They refuse to acknowledge it. They don't want to recognize the, the full extent of their spiritual departure from God. And so, as I say, this, this man is brought even to, to marry an unfaithful woman so that the, the surprise of it, the prophet of God has, has married a harlot. It's meant to make an impression The message, despite the doom and gloom, is one inviting recovery. It is filled with hope. Hope because God has not left them. What's worse than hearing all this judgment is when God falls silent and he has nothing to say. Remember that when you read language of judgment. Remember that what would be far worse would be if God had nothing to say at all. In chapter 6, verse 1, the word is, Come, and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. But it's so hard to get through to them, especially when they're filled with the idea that God doesn't see what we're doing. He has no idea what we're doing. Chapter 7, verse 2, they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. I see you. I see it all. And they're described as being a silly dove, like a witless creature, and a deceitful bow, or bow rather, a, a crooked bow. Useless. This is how God describes them. But God repeatedly, as we've said, invites. He invites them to be recovered. And our text today has such an invitation. And I wish to highlight it. I want to think upon Hosea 10, 12, and I want to do so by framing the headings in the kind of an opposite language. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. But I'm using the opposite language in part to try and drive home the point of what it is that the prophet was facing and what the people were inclined to do with what he was saying. So verse 12 says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. 
I've titled the message, How to Seek God in Vain. How to Seek God in Vain. The text is hoping that you seek God purposefully, but the context of the prophet made me think of how most people were going to respond to this verse. And most people were not going to respond doing what it was saying. They were going to do the opposite. And I think, at least for me in my heart, there was a certain light shed upon the text by thinking of it in that way. Thinking of it in the negative. Thinking of it in the way that was not going to be the way that the prophet would hope. So, how to seek God in vain, which is not what we want to do. But if we ignore this text, that's what we will do. So when we think of this, first of all, we would say neglect the gospel. Neglect the gospel because the text says, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Israel was a largely agricultural people and the picture given is an agricultural picture and it's one that they would have been familiar with. It's, it's looking at land, a parcel of land, however large, that is in dire need of attention. Nothing can be done with this land unless there is the breaking up of its foulness. It needs attention. But it begins with the language of sowing righteousness, reaping mercy. Sowing righteousness. What is it calling us to do? What's it saying positively? It's saying Give consideration to the gospel. To sow in righteousness is to begin where Abraham rather began. When we're told in Genesis 15, 6 that he believed in the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. Abraham has righteousness, possesses righteousness by imputation, by the free gift and grace of God, given to him, received by faith alone. Abraham, the father of the faithful, then becomes exemplary in what is the path of reconciliation with God. God does not tell you to do better and try harder. He says, believe. Believe. Believe in what I have done. Believe in what I have accomplished. And so the beginning of our hearts begins with a sowing in the true comprehension of the gospel. Sowing in righteousness. Oh, it has practical application to us and how we live, for sure, and we'll see that in just a moment. But it must begin where the gospel begins. And the gospel begins not by telling you to try in a different way or, or work and with more effort. The gospel doesn't begin there, men and women. It doesn't begin there. It begins with a recognition that it doesn't matter how hard you try, you are destined to fail. You'll never satisfy God's holy demands. You'll never meet the need of your heart by doing more the fact that Israel had rejected the gospel is highlighted in Hosea 6, verse 6, well-known text. It's found there, I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And so they, they were doing the outward, performing the outward. They were doing what they felt was necessary, but, but there was an emptiness. It, it was coming from a place where there was a lack of true faith. They were performing the sacrifices without understanding the meaning of the sacrifices. They weren't resting in what it typified. They weren't seeing there God's provision. 
They weren't understanding that in those sacrifices they were to see beyond. Not merely see, look, look at the sacrifice I've made, the animal that I have given. But the how this shows what God is going to give. That God will provide himself a lamb. Is that not what again Abraham understood in Genesis 22? These Israelites had lost sight of that. They, they had their, their going to church, so to speak, going up to the temple, the, the busyness of the Levitical priests and all the sort of things that were going on. They had their own form of that in the northern kingdom. They had all these, this, 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 this busyness of places of worship, but it was, it was devoid of, of truth, of the heart of the matter. And the reason for that, again, I come back to it, is because the gospel didn't govern their hearts. It, it was not there. It didn't govern their life. So to sow to yourselves in righteousness is to recognize afresh the need for the gospel. Another way to describe what this text says is to, to live the word of God. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. How do you live the word of God? Well, you, you believe what it asks you to believe and you do what it asks you to do. There, there's two sides to that, but I'm focusing first on the believing. Because if we gather here, if we think that the renewal before God first begins with me making vows and trying harder and doing more religious activity, then we've missed the point. The whole point of Genesis through Revelation is you can't accomplish this. You can't rebuild. You can't renovate. You can't change anything by yourself. The disciples are made to see this very clearly in John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. You begin with the gospel. You begin with the person of God's Son. You begin with the finished work accomplished by Him, what He has done. To sow to yourselves in righteousness is a work first of God in the heart producing faith that rests actually away from your own works, that rests from any sense that you're satisfying God by your own obedience. It abandons that and appropriates by faith the righteousness found in Christ alone. But it does go beyond that. John Gill notes about this text, doing works according to the word of righteousness from good principles and with good views with a view to the glory of God. And so, to truly believe the gospel is not merely then to say you believe it, it's to have that faith then working out in your life. To sow to yourselves in righteousness is to having appropriated by faith Christ, there is the living out of Christ in the life. There is the, the walking even so as He walked. There is the obedience there is, if you love me, keep my commandments. They're all the expressions of God's word. And this is how to reap a harvest of mercy. You will reap in mercy when you do this. When you live, if we can use this language, a cross-centered life. It is a cross-centered life that will obtain the mercy of God. So before we go any further... Let us just underline that what the unbelieving Israelites were inclined to do when hearing this, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, they were inclined to think they needed to try harder. 
and they're going to do more. And maybe they would offer another sacrifice or do something else to try and placate God. And what the prophet is saying, no. In doing that, you're neglecting the gospel. In doing that, you're turning away from the very heart of the issue. It's all external. It's all just a matter of form. There isn't the real heart of the issue. When I look at you, I see the adultery of the heart. I see the spiritual fornication going on while you do things in my name. You're worshiping Baal, giving yourself to false gods. Turn again to the gospel. The gospel calls you to obey one God, to give your heart to one Christ, to trust in one answer for your sin, to believe it, and then to live it out. So as you consider the state of your own heart, if you sense at all the possibility that you are in a condition where there's a drifting, there's a need for renovating and restoration and reviving and renewal in your own soul, get back here and see the call to the gospel. That call that you responded to when you received Christ and when you couldn't believe that the Son of God loved you and gave Himself for you. You go back there to the foot of the cross in the shadow of Calvary. You see those five bleeding wounds and you sob because they were bled out for you. And you can't believe that God loves you. You go back to the gospel. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Get the heart of the matter right in your own life. Begin to comprehend then what that does to your soul. Read the apostle in Philippians 3 and see the consequences of grasping and truly sowing to yourselves in righteousness. What did that mean for him? Well, it begins, Philippians 3, many of you know it well. If you don't, turn there. It begins with this recognition of the utter dung of his own righteousness, the emptiness of, of being of the tribe of Benjamin and circumcised the eighth day, and a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and touching the law of Pharisee, all these things, all these things that he lifted up and said, here I'm sowing righteousness. He's brought to realize that it's done. And the real goal then is to win Christ. Win Christ. That's sowing righteousness. Beginning with the gospel, and ending with the gospel. But it has a consequence. It means that we press toward the mark, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It means a pursuit after Him. It's this desire that I may know Him, a longing to know Christ, to keep pursuing Christ, not simply saying there He is on the cross, dying for my sin, but there is this lifelong exploration that your whole life will be given to live for Him, to serve Him, to tell to the world there's no greater news than that God sent His Son. He receives sinful men. I know because I am such a sinful man. He has received me. Oh, there is no personal revival where there is not a personal apprehension of the gospel. I mean a real apprehension. I'm not saying that you know the Romans wrote. I'm not saying that you know the way of salvation in your head and you can assent to it and you say, man is a sinner. Christ died for sinners. We're to believe I mean a true apprehension that changes the life. For Paul, following Christ, 
He tells us in Galatians 6, 17, meant to bear in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. His apprehension of the gospel brought him to bear in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You compare that with the average professing Christian today who will struggle to bear the name of Christ upon their lips, never mind the marks of Christ upon their body. That's what we've come to in the prosperity of our day. To be in such a state is to not apprehend, to not comprehend. You don't get it. So neglect the gospel. That's what these Israelites sadly were inclined to do. Saying, sow yourselves in righteousness. Get to the heart of the issue. But they wouldn't. They would neglect the gospel. And so all they're praying, all they're seeking of God would be in vain. Now how can you pray while you neglect the one mediator between God and men? How can you expect God to hear you if you bypass the only path into the presence of God? Secondly, protect your interests. Not only neglect the gospel, but protect your interests. Break up your fallow ground. Fallow ground is neglected ground. It's ground that has become hardened with the changing weather and passing of time. It's not been worked. So it becomes hard. It's not that it's utterly useless. It's just useless while it stays fallow. You can't do anything with it. There's a work that needs to be done. And this text uses the language break up. It needs to be broken up. They understood this. And again, they're agricultural. They, they know they, this is preaching to farmers or people who understand farming, right? And there would not be one hearing Hosea and what God is saying through his servant who would, who would go to someone and say, go ahead and sow the seed and do the work of sowing the seed on fallow ground. They would all say to you, that's a waste of time. Why would you do that? That's a waste of good seed. Nothing's going to happen. You're not going to have any crop if you just try to scatter seed on fallow ground. That would be the height of lunacy. Well, so it is to try and live a religious life when the ground is fallow in your heart. This happens to us. Break up your fallow ground. This, this happens and I can't break up yours, and you can't break up mine, there's something you must do. Break up your fallow ground. And the reason why your ground is fallow may be different than the reason why my ground becomes fallow, but the real point of the issue is that this is where it ends up, this fallow ground of our hearts. And when it happens, we're spiritually paralyzed. We can't do anything. We can't bear fruit. So, so even as the word goes out, it just kind of bounces on the surface. There's no profitability in the hearing of the word. 
or in the reading of the word. Again, you, they had exposure to a certain measure of truth, these people, and yet it was not penetrating. It was not producing. The prophet felt like he was bashing his head against a brick wall. No one seems to respond. Why? Because the heart, the hearts of the people were fallen. They were hard. They had driven out the Spirit's influence. They could hear the words. They could assent to the truth, but they couldn't make any progress. This is, this is spinning your wheels. Nothing grows. Nothing thrives. Nothing happens. So how does this come about? How does the ground become fallow? Why does it get to this place? Did it begin that way? No. No, the Lord mercifully brought them to himself. Part of that is recorded in this prophecy is the picture is painted of their past and God's mercy to them. But over the course of time, and of course there have been many seasons of, of fallowness that had happened to them, but the current generation finds itself in the same position. This, this foulness of the heart. And again, it's, it's, it's like you ask yourself sometimes, how did we get here? Well, one of the ways, one of the ways of, of describing what we're doing is we're protecting our interests. The ground becomes fallow because of things like prosperity. You're prospering. Things are going well, enjoying a measure of success. You don't know real hardship and material things at least. And so what happens with the ease of that is that the, the ground can become fallow. Prosperity becomes an instrument of creating a fallowness in the heart. Again, you don't know what it's like to pray, give us this day our daily bread, and really, really wonder where the bread's going to come from. You don't, you don't know. You've, you've been spared that. And so the prosperity breeds a following of the heart. Ease. This also has an effect. The ease with which we can meander through our lives, most of us. And certainly long periods of our lives can be marked by ease and it's easy to adjust to it. And when we adjust to ease, then we can become this way. Our hearts become foul, hardened, impenetrable. And of course, part of the issue isn't so much that you've prospered, right? The issue isn't in the prosperity. It's in the prosperity. And then when God comes to address you in your prosperity, you, you resist it. Or in your ease, God comes to address you in your ease and, and you resist his word. You know, maybe, you know, you're, you're enjoying a measure of ease and God is saying, well, I want you to do this. All right, let's take an extreme example. Not extreme in the sense of it, it never happens, but extreme in the sense of, of what we see in the church in terms of God dealing with people this way. They might be in a comfortable job, in a comfortable career, and their whole life is mapped out for them, and everything is all arranged and planned, and then God comes and says, you know what? I want you to go to a foreign nation where there's no church and preach the gospel to a people who don't know it. Unsettles the ease. 
And you can respond to it or you can harden yourself. That's one way to illustrate, but I think we do it in less dramatic ways. It just everyday ways in which God addresses our ease, calls us to do something. I mean, it might be simple. The day of prayer. <laughs> Come, be at the place of prayer. Wednesday nights, be at the place of prayer. Whatever the occasion might be, it's a small thing. But we, we protect our ease. We protect it. Bitterness and unforgiveness. It's another way to follow the ground. God comes and says, you know, stop, stop feeling that way about that person. Stop harboring that feeling towards those individuals. That comes and, and as he addresses it, because it needs to be addressed, we, 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 things happen to us, right? This happens. We, we are hurt by people. It's part of being in this world. And God mercifully comes and tells us how to address it. And if we're foolish, then we, 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 we protect their interests. We, we like feeling that way. We want to harbor on to the bitterness and the unforgiveness. We feel justified in doing so. It creates fallow ground. All forms of egotism. Arrogance, self-elevation, self-promotion, self-satisfaction, any form of self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, can follow the heart, harden the heart, a pursuit of the world, an aversion to fighting sin and crucifying the flesh, a lack of spiritual meditation, an attitude of discontentment, believing we deserve better. Many are the ways we follow the ground. Many. It robs our joy, minimizes our thanksgiving, reduces our spiritual amazement, limits our service and self-sacrifice. Why? Because we protect our interests. The fallow ground then means we make no progress. You can be in the same spiritual place you were 15 years ago. When Rehoboam set out taking over from Solomon, he began, well, in obedience to God. But it didn't stay that way. Eventually things go pear-shaped. Second Chronicles 12, verse 14, we read, And he did evil. He did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. His lack of giving himself to true prayer resulted in evil works. The lack of giving himself to God and fellowship and communion and dependence on him. I mean, he's, he's king. He's not dependent on anyone. So his carnal mind might imagine. So he doesn't seek God. And evil, evil is the fruit of it. 
Beloved, this is, this, this, is the, this is the dangerous reality when we ignore fallow ground. The seeds of God's Word that help make us more Christ-like don't get into our being. And so, they sit on the top on the surface of our lives. We're aware of them, but they're not changing us. And it's only a matter of time when we begin to do things we might never have imagined we would do. Then we start justifying them. And we're able to hide it from view and imagine that we're getting away with it. Before finally, we get exposed. All because of this fallowness. Look at your heart. Take a good look at your heart. Is there repentance there? Is there a swiftness to repent there? Or have you become weary and well-doing? Our hearts are so inclined that they require daily work. <laughs> they can never be neglected. It's like weeds in the yards of the south. Yes, I thought I knew what weeds were like growing up in Northern Ireland until I moved to the south and I have never seen weeds like I see here and the way these vines grow and other things that you would prefer didn't exist. And some of them are really hard to kill. They won't go away. Now you take out the best weapon you have. You look out a week later and you shoot. Living in the south and doing yard work gives you an advantage. Because every time you deal with that, you're looking into your own heart. It's the same. If you neglect it, it will take but a half a season before you see that you've neglected your heart. You see it in the yard, you see it in your life. True in both places. So you have to be turning the soil. You have to be pulling up the weeds. You have to break up your fallow ground. You young people need to learn this. You need to learn it early. Because you have passions and interests and inclinations and they are ready. It's just crouching at the door ready to destroy you. So wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? But you won't hear it if you're not plowing up the ground. If you're not breaking up the heart. The psalmist goes on to say, With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. How does he hide it in the heart? You want to know how he hides the word in the heart? He takes the word, right? He takes what he's been reading or what he's heard preached. And then he looks into this fallow, inclined heart of his and he tears it all up and he puts the word in there through meditation. 
is through purpose and intent and desire. You don't, you don't hide the word in the heart by accident. There has, there has to be this, this digging up, this removing of the, the natural hardness that's there. And then you put it in there and it stays in there and it begins to germinate and produce fruit in your life. And then you find yourself having power to resist sin and to say no to temptation. Because that word is bearing fruit in your life. Oh, we protect our interests, don't we? Preacher, stop making me uncomfortable. I can imagine Hosea. <laughs> I can imagine some of the voices raised against him. Oh, the hard work of living in a hard day. When people don't want to hear what needs to be said. Certainly you see that downtown yesterday. Just teeming with people. And the odd person who walks by probably more than I would experience in many other places, for sure, walking by and giving a hearty amen and praise God and keep at it and thumbs up and thank God for those folk if they truly know the Lord. But there are others that are extremely hardened. Don't want you to give literature into the hand of a child. Don't dare tear the literature out of the hand of their children. Their children are willing to take it. Children reach out to take what you're giving them and the parent rips it from their hand. But oh, let us not look at them and see the hardness that we see all around us in Greenville. John Newton, full of Sound advice. He gives counsel to us as believers, especially with regard to the matter of pride. And when we comp compare ourselves with, a, with an unregenerate, fallen, disobedient, Christ-rejecting world. He says, true Christians, through the remaining evil of their hearts and the subtle temptations of their enemy, are liable not only to the workings of that pride which is common to our fallen nature, but to a certain kind of pride, which though the most absurd and intolerable in any person can only be found among those who make profession of the gospel. So he's, he's dealing with this. This pride is pervasive in every one of us. But there's a certain type of it in us who make profession. We have nothing but what we have received, and therefore to be proud of our titles, wealth, knowledge, success, or any temporal advantages by which the providence of God has distinguished us is downright sinful. For those who confess themselves to be sinners, and therefore deserving of nothing but misery and wrath, to be proud of those peculiar blessings which are derived from the gospel of God's grace is a wickedness of which even the demons are not capable of. We do this. We do this through theological pride. We do this in a day in which 
There's hardly a church in 50 that has a prayer meeting. And so we can look and say, hey, look, we have a day of prayer. And yet we ruin the very thing we're trying to accomplish because we enter into it thinking ourselves to be better. This is all just protecting our interests. We want to be, we want to be known to be a faithful church. But we actually turn it into an occasion of sin. Oh, we're not alone in this. We're not alone in the, in the temptation to this because the, the church at Ephesus was guilty of this very thing. They were chasing away the heretics. They were standing firm for the truth, but they had left their first love. Finally, ignore the urgency. Ignore the urgency. Here's another way of negatively looking at this, how the, the Israelites perhaps would have responded to this text, calling them to consider, focus upon the gospel and they would not, considering the need to break up their fallow ground, but instead they would protect their interests. And then they're called to act now. It is time to seek the Lord. It is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. But the inclination of man is to ignore the urgency of this word. We can do the same. A few things before we close here. The time to get right with God is always now. It is time. It is time. If you have sensed, even remotely, a thought within your mind that there, that is me today. There is a fallowness in my spiritual life. There's a hardness. There is... There's a want in me. And you can agree and say, that's me. Then when do you address it? Immediately. You don't hesitate for a second. You don't even wait for the afternoon of prayer. You deal with it now. In these very seconds, even as I speak, it is time. It is time to seek the Lord. The language implies all the wasted time prior, doesn't it? It is time to seek the Lord. Because you haven't done it up to now. You've neglected. You've wasted years. Oh, how we, we have to learn this the hard way, don't we? How difficult things must get before the church wakes up. <clears throat> I mean, look at the headlines, and every headline is a providential alarm to the church of Jesus Christ in America. Every disappointing outcome, every political catastrophe, every immoral leader, all of it, everyone is a providential alarm saying to the church, it is time And we're not listening. Now we see it. And we talk about it. And we're conscious of it. And we, in a certain sense, we lament it. What happened to our once great nation? And we still imagine ourselves to be beyond the possibility of a complete collapse. But we're not. 
were not. Israel had carried on for centuries. God had shown them extended mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And the generation that Hosea is living in, they're on the cusp. And they, they're, what's their inkling? Well, it's, it's not happened before. And look at all the deliverances we've enjoyed in the past. And they could, they could argue, that the Lord, they'll be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And Hosea's like, wake up! It is time! If we do not respond now, there will be no more time. The candle will burn out of our opportunity. The enemies are just around the corner, just over the hill. They're waiting. And at God's command, they're going to come and take away everything. And that's what happened. Hosea saw it for himself. Here he is, lifting up his voice. It's time. It's time. Oh, I preached to my own heart. Dear God, help me. It is time. And the place to get right with God, the time is always now. The place is before God in prayer. It is time to seek the Lord. It's not time to start a new political party. We need a, need a third party to represent us. It's not time to write a manifesto of all the problems. It's not time to get together and strategize. It's not that these things are all entirely wrong. But the one thing we will neglect generation after generation after generation is just seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. He won't do it. The Lord sometimes brings in his mercy. He brings tragedy into your life. It brings hardship. It brings little, little indications of how difficult it can be. And we're meant to respond. Lord, deliver. You see it in the life of David. David. God did this for David over and over again. He brought little hardships into David's life. And sometimes big hardships into David's life. And the whole purpose was to keep David pressing in. Pressing in, keeping his heart from becoming fallow. This utter dependency upon God so that when he prays, he prays with his whole being. He cries out for his soul. That's what happens then when God, God does this, when he works into you, when you're not protecting your interests, when, you, when like David, you're being exposed. Like David tried to protect his interests sometimes. He, he did, he fell short. But how merciful God was and how responsive he was on those occasions when it came like a loud screaming and a neon lights before David. You're the man, David, come on. And he would respond. He would hear it. He would, he would hear the call. And he began to break up his fallow ground. And that's why you have the book of Psalms. That's why we, we sing and we read these, these words of a man who's constantly being plowed up. And his whole soul is, is filled with a sense of vital religion, true fellowship with God. And he walks with God. He's constantly seeking the Lord. Oh, beloved, stay in the presence of God until God does a work. Tell God the problem. Tell him, tell God, I, I read my Bible, I pray, but there's an emptiness, and I can't do it. I can't seem to make headway to bring myself into a place of spiritual vitality. You start getting honest. You start acknowledging that you're sinking. That's when the hand of omnipotence reaches out to lift you up. But stop ignoring it. 
Stop protecting your interests. Stop acting like there's no problem. Stop putting on a facade before the living God who sees the true condition of your heart. Never advance. You have also here the promise that if you get right with God, there's divine visitation. Till he come. That's what we're looking for. Till he come. We need the Lord to come. That's what you need in your family. That's what you need in the unregenerate within your household and your family connections. You need God to come. Nothing else will do. You know this. You know this. Surely, surely you know this. And God is saying it is time to seek the Lord till he come. Seek the Lord until. Don't give up. Don't make it just today. Keep on. Seek the Lord until. Till he come. Till he comes. Like just keep on seeking. Like really crying out to God. Oh, what a wonder it was for those who kept on seeking through these hard days. Men like Hosea. They kept on seeking God and the little remnant that always God preserves. And they prayed and they prayed for generations. And there were other one prophet after another. This, this Hosea is telling them how, how Judah's still walking with God. To learn from them, they're still going on with God. Look, look, just look south and, and emulate that. They have a heart for God. They, they're told that. But, but they, won't, they won't humble themselves. And Judah becomes the same. Judah ends up doing the same thing. Abandoning God. Neglecting God. Presuming upon his ongoing mercy and his patience with them despite sin. And then you have 400 years, basically, of, of silence. No, no prophetic voice. No, no man like Hosea, like Daniel, Ezekiel. They're not there. They're men speaking truth, for sure, but, but no one who has this, this clothing of the prophet. They're not there. And yet to their people still, it's time to seek the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord. And others are looking on and saying, what's the point? God doesn't even have anything to say. And they go, no, no, he does. Look, it's all here. It's all here. We don't need anything more. It's right here. It is, it's still time to seek the Lord, they would say. It's still time to seek the Lord. And 400 years, they live and they die and they live and they die and they live and they die. It's still time to seek the Lord till he come. And then you have Simeon entering into that multi-generational experience. And God tells him, you're going to see it. You're going to see him come. And he knew he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he saw him come. And all the hopes fulfilled in the face of the infant Christ. And he sings. He has come. And then he lives his life and he dies on the cross and rises again from the dead and this same Jesus, before he departs, he says, there's still a coming that needs to happen. The promise of the Father. And don't you tarry in Jerusalem till he come. You tarry in Jerusalem till he come. Don't leave. Don't budge. Don't go anywhere. Just tarry in Jerusalem till he come. And rain righteousness upon you. So they did. They tarried. And they prayed. And he came in power. 
And we're still praying, aren't we? Even so, come Lord Jesus. We're still praying. And in the intervening period, what are we doing? We're needing the Holy Spirit to keep coming in ongoing waves of enabling the church to advance till Christ comes. What is the need today? Holy Spirit, till he come. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what this church needs. We need the Holy Spirit to come. And I, I fear that unless he does, all we're going to do is just, 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 just take away the time. There's a need for him to come. And I don't know how to make it happen. Except that we follow the instruction of a text like this. Break up the fallow ground. Take a good look at the soil of your heart. And ask, is it conducive to fruit? Is it? Make it fluffy. See it there. Just work at it, work at it, work at it. And oh, invite God to come and blacken that soil. So it's conducive to true fruit. And he comes and he reigns. With those showers of his blessing, there's a harvest the like of which cannot be described in anything but terms of revival. May God help us. Let's pray. Beloved, Revival, personal revival, is the need of every one of us. Stop looking to your left and to your right, up ahead and behind. Personal revival, that's the need. And I need it. And I need to break up my fallow ground. And you need it. And you need to break up your fallow ground. And wait till he comes. Lord, help us today. We look to the time of fellowship, sweeten it, harness it for our good. Let not the impression of thy word dissipate by us gathering to enjoy the meal together. Around meals, you bless your people. Around tables, you encourage your church. Do that today. And then bring us back into this place to seek thy face. Lord, we don't know where to begin except by calling upon thee. Come, Lord. Make no tarrying, O oh, my.
God. In the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit, be the abiding portion of all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.